Hello and welcome to the Brazil MBA guest. It's a pleasure to have you here with me. If you are not yet subscribed to my channel, please do so right now. Click on the bell so you'll be alerted every time we have a new video for you. And we have been interviewing guests from all over the world to talk about interesting topics related to business and Today, my guest is Dr. Dilia Makebo. Hello, doctor. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Fabrizio. I'm so pleased to be here. We met in Lisbon, a very energetic event. And um, thank you for the opportunity to chat to your community. Oh, I thank you very much for that. It's an honor to have you here. And uh, it was really a good time at the World Agility Forum in Lisbon, where we met. And thank you for accepting my invitation to come to my show and share your knowledge and it was very nice to listen to you at that event talking about how neuroscience can help us to live better to do better our work but i have a very specific question for you today and my question is what does neuroscience have to teach us about organizational change something that is really important for business analysts as me and usually my audience well, this is a really, really good question. And I want to answer it with a question to start this discussion. So everybody that's here, and I'm asking you the question as well, how easy is it for you to change yourself, to change the way you think, to change your behavior, to change your routines, to change your habits? How easy is it to change? Uh, may I put a, a word on that? Uh, I'm... I always think that people may may like change if the, those are changed for good. Like if you ask someone, would you like to win a lottery? That would bring a lot of change and people would accept that very uh, 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 with open arms or at least they think they would, right? Yeah. But that's a very rewarded change. But some changes bring some risks and I think people would avoid those kind of risks or uncertainty. Yes uncertainty we want to avoid we want to avoid something that we're not sure about and also we want to avoid something that's going to use more energy so for example if someone hasn't exercised for a long time and now they say what well, i want to change i want to start moving more it's hard to make those changes so that leads me into the discussion about organizations if it's really challenging to change our own behaviors for the better that may not be easy to change it's so much harder for organizational change because you're not just changing one person. You now have to change 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people. You have to change them to be able to make the organization change. And that's where the challenge comes in. So neuroscience, because it understands how the brain works, makes it easier for organizations to change because when you're working with how the brain works, it's easier to implement change versus working against the way the brain works. And once leaders understand this and they work with how the brain works, then change becomes a lot easier in organizations. And it's extremely important for leaders to get this today because of the change that's happening in our environment. We have exponential change now, and we've also got increased complexity. So asking people to change and adapt and innovate and be creative in the midst of all of the change that's going on around us so now we've got all of that change and we have to change ourselves and how we're doing things and how we're dealing with, with product change and team change. It puts a lot on a person and on leaders if they don't understand how to work with the brain. 
So neuroscience has a lot to teach organizations about change. Okay. Well, there are some comments here on the chat, and I would like to bring some of our, of our friends. So Danelks is saying that we are some of her favorites, and Danelks, you were on our hearts as well, right? Steve Jones is saying that uh, uh, we're doodly use is awesome. Uh, Thomas Martin, who was with us in Lisbon, also nice to see you here, Thomas, nice to see. And Steve brings this thing about change. Uh, it's probably easier if it's temporary. Instant change is easy, he says, but lasting change is, is a lot harder. And when we are talking about organizational change, it's hard to make changes that stick. Uh, do you agree with that statement? It is harder to make change that sticks because remember that when we are in a groove, that means a habit, it's actually a neural groove. That Those neural patterns are established because neurons fire together and then they wire together and then they make a neural pathway. To be able to make a new neural pathway requires new energy. That's why it's so easy to fall back into the old way of doing things because a habit requires less energy. So now think about organizational change. Think about all the people that have to make the changes in alignment with where the new destination may be or the new product or the new procedure, whatever it is. Now people have to make a new neural pathway. And so they need neural energy to be able to do that. And that's why it's hard to make change stick. People revert back to the old habitual pathway because, you see, we never, ever override an old habit. It stays there. It lurks there in the brain. It's there for good. So we never override it with a new one. We now have to create a new one. And that's where the effort comes in. That's where the neural energy can become a challenge. When people are overwhelmed, there's too much uncertainty, there's too much change at once. Because that's another thing to keep in mind. If leaders are trying to get team leaders and, and team members and employees to change a lot of things at the same time, you will find a lot less success for that change because people cannot make a lot of new neural pathways all at the same time. It just requires too much neural energy to do that. So implementing one change at a time makes sense. But then I hear people saying, I can already hear the, the keyboard saying, well, what do we do? In today's world, there are all these changes that are happening at the same time. Well, we actually have to step up for that. And some of those changes may be testing changes. And by that, I mean, you may decide not to make a long-term change, but, you know, maybe just try this change and see, is it working? Is it taking us closer to our destination? Does it look like it may work company-wide? Because you may make a change in one division and then, you know, allow that change to spread out to other divisions if it works in that one. So there are a number of different ways to look at making change happen, but we need to keep the brain in mind. Those neural pathways, the energy required to make new habits and make those changes has to be kept in mind. I'm, I'm listening to what I was saying, and I'm, I'm thinking about two different types of organization, right? So there's this organization that has its process, its way of working, and this organization wants to change for a new way of working. And so there's this conflict between how the brain, or how the neurons are connected, and so we have to transform the organization and that's the usually what are, uh, where organizations create a project a transformation project and try to make that transformation and you are telling me that maybe those transformations could be smaller and, and and we can learn from that that would be not as scary i can understand that 
there's another type of organization that I would like to, to think with you and see if that's possible, right? It's an organization where change is the pattern. Because if the world is changing all over the time, so my neurons should not be adapted or, or, or used to be comfortable stopping in the same way. They should be comfortable in change because change is happening. And so if my organization is what I call a nimble organization or an organization who can always learn and understand what's happening and, and I would not just even call it change, but adapt. So adaptation is the, is the, is the regular thing for that organization. Can I construct a, a mind, I don't know, that, that's the, the, the correct word, a collective mind of, of an organization where dealing with change is the regular thing. And so they are not, they don't have to change the way they think or they, uh, they would be not stressful as it is or not okay. so energy consuming. This is an excellent question. And there are quite a few things that we have to take into account when we look at this, because some people are happier with change than others. And we know this, you know, you just, you know, some friends, they're happy to move around. They can be digital nomads. They are okay with all sorts of change. And if something changes around them, they don't get stressed. Then you get people who really like things to stay the same. They don't like change. And this is partly related to our natural tendencies and also what we learned as children in our environment. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But the second thing to keep in mind is when you have an organization where change is rapid, and we can call this an agile organization as well, what you need, you need the people that work for that organization to understand how the brain works. And then you can get them to self-select to positions where change is faster than other positions. Now, I worked with a company a while ago, and they had one person on the team who was, they said was a very negative person. This person never saw any benefit in the change. And we reframed the situation and we got that person to be kind of like the amygdala of the team. So that person would always be looking for what negative thing the change would bring. And you know what that did? That opened up the conversation because now when people were thinking about change, which they'd got so used to doing so quickly and not thinking about the repercussions, it was always the amygdala on the team saying, hold on a second. If you make that change, this could happen. If you make that change, that could happen. And so they were alerted to possible negative consequences of the change. So you can use people's what would seem a negative characteristic in that kind of organization in a positive way for that person to be the call-out person, as I said, the amygdala of the team. So there are a number of different ways of looking at this. But one of the things we know for sure about the human brain, and this seems to be across the board for most brains, most brains are not really excited about change. And that's because one of the things that the brain likes is to find patterns and to be able to assess the consequence of change. Why? Because those both relate to survival. If you could pick up a pattern of something happening in the environment, for example, storm clouds on the horizon may have meant a uh, typhoon, then you could better survive. If you could anticipate what will happen after the typhoon, you had a better chance of survival too. So those circumstances of constant uncertainty lead the brain to feel a little bit more nervous about the environment that it's in. So I don't think that the rapid change we're dealing with at the moment actually suits the human brain because of its, of its ancient structure. It really wants stability and security primarily for 
survival to reproduce. So that's something just to keep in mind when we speak about this. But there's something else that you mentioned, and you mentioned the word stress. Now, stress is extremely important in the change environment that we're in and in making decisions around change. And there's quite a lot of research around this. Um, a woman by the name of Jennifer Luddo, and I can send the details to you for anybody who wants to read that particular article, looked at what the brain does when it's stressed. And one of the things they found that was really interesting was that the brain prefers to exploit what it knows. That's habitual behavior, habitual decisions, habitual ways of operating in an environment versus what we call explore. And explore is going out and looking at new ideas, change, a decision related to something that you've seen in the environment that needs to change, what's happening in the marketplace. Now, when the brain is very stressed, the brain much prefers exploitation. So it will hunker down. It will say, hold on a second. I want to stick to what I know and what I know the outcome is going to be. When the brain isn't stressed, when it feels relaxed and calm, it will say, hold on a second. I want to explore. I want to see what's around the corner. I want to see what I can try. So what we want to do, we want to make sure in this rapid changing environment that we have more brains that are unstressed because they can explore more and are happier with change versus brains that are stressed and want to exploit what they know. So that's an extremely important part of this discussion. And because the brain really isn't very excited about rapid ongoing change, most people would feel a little bit hesitant to be in an environment where everything's changing all the time because of the ancient structure of the brain. Christina brings us a question and she wants to know how is fear related to this? You told about this person that you call the amygdala person into the group. Is he someone who fears? Or fear is just part of this stress that you're, that you're asking? That's an excellent question. I think fear forms part of this whole emotional um, experience that people have around change because we fear what we don't know. We fear what's in the dark. We fear what's around the corner. We fear when we can't pick up a pattern and we don't know what the consequence could be for a situation. And so a person that is more fearful, the amygdala person on the team, would be the person that was going, what if? The bad thing? What if the bad person? What if the bad end result for the product change? Those are all based on the fear of not understanding what can come next. So when we address those issues, uh, part of that addressing it is to explain to people how the brain works. Now, when I do that with people, I can promise you the light bulb goes off and I see it in their eyes because suddenly they go, aha, there's nothing wrong with me. It's a reassurance that their brains are completely and absolutely normal. Now, just to mention one thing here, which is an important thing to mention, and I know it's a bit of a contentious issue out in society today. We know that the male brain is generally more okay with risk and change, whereas the female brain is a little less uh, happy with change and risk because the females had to make sure that the next generation survived and the males had to go out and hunt. And so they naturally had to be involved in more risky situations. And the perfect example of this is that there are more men in jail than women. So men naturally gravitate to more risk and more change. 
Now, when we work together in a team, it's really interesting when you see men and women cooperate in this way. Because then you have the, ma the male saying, well, let's go ahead and try this in any case. And the woman says, hold on a second, let's think a little bit more about that. So this is where we have this, you know, the diversity of thought come into this discussion, which I think is very important and it's often overlooked and partly because of, you know, what's happened in society in terms of gender. But we need to keep this in mind because if you want to have good decision making and change based on the right way of thinking, then we need to take into account all this cooperation and the coordination that happens between the different brains and how we all think. And there's a belief behind that. That's a very, I understand as a business analysis belief, uh, that is different perspectives get better decisions. If you can look for a situation in a lot of different perspectives, you can understand the, the situation better. I want to make you a question about, uh, about thinking and feeling. Uh, because we are talking about fear and you said that explaining for people how the brain works may help them to sometimes control their fears uh, and I, I, I was thinking about the way we act depends on what happens inside here and, and, and just thinking is part of it but feeling as well and so uh, because I think this I fear that Or because I fear that I think this. So, uh, uh, what comes first in the mind of someone, and how can we deal with these? Because probably both uh, uh, influence each other, fears and, and, and thoughts. And just giving people more information is not enough to avoid their fears. Maybe you have to sing a little song for them. I, I have no idea. <laughs> how can we deal with fears when they come from, from feelings and not? Uh, necessarily something that they have consciously this is a really really good question and so i'm going to give you a perfect example so let's imagine that we're all walking through the forest on a beautiful day the sun is shining it's magnificent and we're walking along and just enjoying the beautiful day and suddenly we hear a rustle in the bushes before we can think our body is moving because emotion travels two times faster than thought does. And it needs to do that because we need to be moving away from a possible threat before we think about whether that threat is actually real or not. Because it could be a bunny rabbit in the bushes. But guess what? All of us are here because all of our four parents ran away when they heard the rustle. They acted on the negative bias that the brain has for being fearful before being confident. I have to say that, but there's a squirrel just crossing your the tree behind you. <laughs> the same one. They are so cute. And sometimes they run in front of me with the tree out in front here. And then I have to keep my eye on the camera and not look at them. But they are so cute and they are agile. They move. You know, let me just talk about this for one moment. I've spent quite a lot of time watching them. And you know, they jump from one branch to the next. And as they land on the branch and it doesn't feel secure, they immediately off that branch and onto the next one. So they move through the canopy of the trees in their own little highway, constantly judging the environment and where they land. And there is a lesson within that for us. And part of that lesson is that their brains are very small. Okay. <laughs> so that's, 
that's part of the lesson that I, that's part of what I teach people. Our brains are very, very sophisticated. Our brains are very, very sensitive. Part, researchers believe that as much as 95% of our cognition happens subconsciously, only 5% are we aware of. And that's the 5% we sit and ruminate over and we consider and we, you know, the prefrontal cortex is involved with that, of that 5%. So our, because our brains are so much bigger, we're constantly looking to the future. We're constantly saying, could this happen? Couldn't that happen? And that's part of the, the, the reason that squirrels can be so agile. They don't think so much about what's on the third branch where, you know, people today are considering, could World War III be around the corner? So that's just part of that lesson. But just to go back to speaking about, you know, walking in the forest, emotion travels a lot faster in the brain than thought. So when we come into a situation and it's a situation that we feel that sense of fear, it's actually a physiological response initially. And that happens via the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the adrenal glands. And that response is a response that is meant to get us moving physically away from what used to be a physical threat. Today, we now could be sitting in a car and we're stuck in traffic and we've got this HPA going around and around and around with the, stress, with the stressful thought. Or otherwise, we're in a board meeting or otherwise, we're having a team meeting or otherwise, we're with a client and we have this physiological response that comes up. We need to take into account that we have the capacity to step back from that emotion and pull in our conscious, rational mind that says to ourselves, this is a physiological response. It's a natural response to a fear about something that I don't fully understand and I cannot completely predict. I'm therefore going to think about this a little bit more, ask some more questions, get some more feedback, and then I'm going to make a decision around this or otherwise even better, ask other people to give me input to make this decision. You see, we have this capacity to step back. Whereas when we're walking in the forest and we hear that sound, that capacity to think and step back doesn't rear its head. We immediately start running. And that's great because that's what our brain was primed to do. It's easy for us to do that. It's harder for us to build a new neural pathway that says I'm going to step back mentally. I'm not going to buy into the HPA response and I'm going to think clearly about the situation, get other input. So that's a really important question about the emotion and the thinking. We need to be able to separate the two. And you know what? All we're doing is building a neural pathway to be able to do that. And when you teach people how to do that, one of the things to do is to teach them how their body is responding. So let's just ask a question to the audience now. How many people can very, very accurately and quickly assess their heartbeat? Right. So you mean like if I'm entering a stage to present something in my company, let's say that I'm presenting a project and my heartbeat accelerates and I start to, to breathe very quickly or in that meeting where I don't like what, some other people is saying and I just feel like I want to punch them in the face and I get really emotional about it and having the ability to sense that, perceive yourself is one thing. And there's another thing is how can we avoid punching them in the face? (laughs) Well, that's, that's an excellent question because that's what we're doing when we pull back. Okay. Now a little trick. 
we need to become better at picking up our physiological response. And we call this proprioception. And we can learn to do this very much more effectively. And the more we practice it, once again, building a neural pathway, the more we practice that, the easier it gets for us to pull ourselves back from that wanting to punch someone, stepping back and saying, hold on a second, that's my physiological response. I need to bring in my higher order thinking. But there's something else to do. We can actually physically move ourselves away from what we perceive as a situation that we could feel out of control in. And what does that do? That's another part of proprioception, actually moving our body away from the situation. So in a meeting, you could even say, hold on a second, I just need to go to the bathroom. Hold on a second, I need to go and get another glass of water. Whatever it is, we can actually give ourselves that physical space and that time to step back so that when we come back, our prefrontal cortex has stepped in. The prefrontal cortex, which is involved with inhibition. The prefrontal cortex helps us step back when we want to punch somebody. It helps us reassess the situation and call on our internal control to be able to say, hold on a second, I'm pulling back now. But we can help it. And as I said, those, those are two ways to do that. You know, assess your heart, get into the practice of making it, you know, slow down through breathing and then physically removing yourself. And this is something that we can all practice doing. And, you know, we can practice this in all sorts of environments. Sometimes our family members, you know, press a button and then we feel like responding. But we can actually practice. Step back. I give everybody a challenge. The next time you find yourself in a challenging situation with another person, physically step back and excuse yourself just for a moment and see how you feel when you come back. Just that little bit of a gap allows you to bring in your higher order thinking, which really supports you under those circumstances. And Steve Jones is asking if we could use some devices like biofeedback device help with speed to evaluate. Otherwise, it takes effort to perceive. Do you know something that you could use or wear that would help you like blink in a red, a red light and say, oh, leave this, <laughs> this environment right now. Otherwise, you're going to have trouble. Look, I would prefer people to actually call on their own internal what we call neuroception. And when you start doing that, then you're not relying on technology. You actually can stand alone. But having said that, I have a tiny little Garmin that I use. And <laughs> I actually assess at the end of the day, I assess when I was very, very stressed because it gives me a little graph and it shows me at particular times, you know, what my stress was during the day. And then I go back and I think, okay, I was doing that. And that is why I was very stressed. Now, when I go back at the end of the day today, during this time that I'm doing this, this chat to you, my stress level will be higher than it is when I'm just working at my desk, working on some article or paper or whatever. Now, I know why that is the case, because I've got some adrenaline flushing through my body. I really want to give a good presentation and give good value. I'm making an effort to pull in a whole lot of information and make it really concise. So I'm using a lot of my brain to do that. And so naturally, this little device will pick that up. But that means that the next time I go into one of these, which I do pretty regularly, I now know, just breathe more deeply. I know my heart rate will increase a little bit. So we teach ourselves this neuroception, this capacity for our body and our brain to work together. There's a squirrel now running around up at the top of the tree. Um, <laughs> we teach ourselves how to do this by practice. And this is where it comes into habit. 
So I'm not really keen on relying on an external device, although I use this mindfully. And the reason I don't like to do that is because they change all the time. So if you're relying on that every single day, now they're going to make a software change. Now you're going to have to figure that out. I find it much easier just to rely on what's going on in your body. How do you feel? How did you sleep last night? Are you hydrated enough? Do you have enough nutrients? And we can get to that at the end of this conversation. Um, did you have another interaction that left you feeling frustrated and you didn't speak your mind? Is there an email that you need to send and then your mind will be more settled and so on and so forth? Just calling on heart rate, calling on digestion, calling on muscle, calling on shoulders, being tight and stiff. So that's the answer. It's not the answer that everybody likes to, to hear, but this mindfully and interoception and neuroception practiced is a very, very good solution for ongoing, um, living in an ongoingly complex and changing world. Okay. Danielkos is asking, are there any techniques aside from breathing that could also help us by time to step back? Look, this leads us into a bit of a more complex conversation because one of the things that helps the brain function optimally is making sure that it's full of the right nutrients. And this is a huge conversation because just to give you an example, um, the brain is 2% of our body weight and it uses upwards of 25% of the energy that we consume to keep itself functioning really well. And it has no place to store energy. So stable blood glucose is very important. Now, we know, and everybody on this call would have felt the experience of being hangry. That's when you're hungry, and you're angry, and you're irritable, and you're frustrated, and nothing that's happening around you is good because your brain is actually running low on energy. Now, under those circumstances, we are in trouble because the prefrontal cortex, which is our higher order thinking, is only 10% of brain volume, but it uses 25% of that other 25% that the whole brain is using. So it is the greediest part of the brain. And that's the part of the brain that is the inhibitory, the break for emotions, the break for what you feel like doing, but what you don't do because you know it's not right. Now, when that part of the brain runs out of energy, that's when we have real trouble. And even the best breathing in the world and all of you know, the breathing techniques that are taught are not going to override what the prefrontal cortex is needing because you won't even get the thought to breathe if your brain and your prefrontal cortex is depleted of energy enough because there will be no inhibitory response. That's when you lash out and you have to apologize to the person the next day. I'm really sorry I wasn't feeling myself. That's when you type that email up because you're so angry and you press send and then you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Those are the moments when your prefrontal cortex isn't stepping up to support you. And that has got to do with how much energy is available for the prefrontal cortex to be able to do its job, the inhibitory role that it plays. So that's part of the answer to that question. And it's a, it's a longer answer than that because specific nutrients have specific roles to play in the brain. But as along with breathing, keeping blood glucose stable, and then again, of course, the, the interoception, noting when your heart is racing and allowing it to slow down through breathing is also helpful. So we can do that on a number of different levels. Um, but it takes, you know, habit again. Just building up those habits over time um, allows you to have better control over yourself and the situation. Okay. I want to bring the conversation 
for probably another site that you mentioned, but I want to explore that a little deeper, that is the subconscious. So we know that a lot of ideas, creativity, and, and even the feelings came from the subconscious. And a lot of problems that we have in organization, we just find the answer when we are taking shower or we are running at the gym or just sleeping at the night during night you just wake up with the idea in your head sometimes that sounds like a kind of superpower that people have putting your subconscious to work for you and we can say oh i i don't have the answer right now but i will sleep over it and tomorrow the answer will show up in my head and sometimes that works how can we use that more consciously? How can we make that a superpower that we can explore really? Can we uh, stimulate that? We can. And firstly, we need to understand how it works. So as I said earlier, although there's you know a, a discussion around these percentages, approximately 95% of what goes on in our cognition is below our awareness. And 5% is what we're consciously aware of. So that puts into perspective how much is going on that we aren't fully aware of. And just an example of that is how sometimes you meet a person and there's just something about them that bothers you. And you can't consciously think of what it is, but you know that there is something there and there is something subconsciously that's bothering you. Now, it may be that that person reminds you of somebody that you've forgotten about. But guess what? Your brain hasn't forgotten about that. Maybe there's something about what that person is wearing that once again reminds you of someone that you're not really keen on. But we know that there is a lot of cognitive activity that happens below the radar, below the surface. So that's the first thing. The second thing to keep in mind is that the prefrontal cortex working with the working memory can only hold in place between seven and nine pieces of information. Now, that's really not a lot considering how many different factors have to be taken into account when we think about change and making decisions around change. Seven to nine pieces of information, only that amount. So that's happening consciously. When we go for a walk, for example, and we're looking at nature and we're enjoying it and there are no tigers in the bushes, then what happens is that the brain switches off to a degree and starts being involved in something called the default mode network which is kind of like the autopilot of the brain. And when that happens, some of this information that's circling around in our subconscious manages to, to sneak out and find its way into consciousness. And so sometimes we come back from a walk and we go, you know, I thought about how those two things connect and I'd never thought about that before. And that's because we're allowing in other ways for the brain to operate. And the same thing can happen with a shower. And it also happens at night when we go to sleep because of that subconscious activity. But there is another time when we can allow this creativity and this um, subconscious to rear its head is when we're doing physical exercise. And this is strenuous physical exercise. So about 80% of heart capacity, we find novel thoughts and ideas cropping up into our brain because that threshold of seven to nine pieces of information is no longer in operation because the brain is now operating from a very physiologically active um, perspective, if I can put it that way. And it's not focusing on conscious um, 
data manipulation, analysis, you know, forecasting, none of that is in operation and neither is the working memory limitation. So now you've got all of these other pieces of information that can drift out of the subconscious and then it hits your mind. So you can come back from gym or come back from a run and go, aha, guess what? I've now figured out what I think a solution is. And then you can talk to someone about it. And then you've got some other insight because that's what creativity and innovation is about. It's about connecting disparate ideas that haven't been connected before. And we, have, we can set ourselves up to allow us to do that by giving our brain those opportunities to allow what's in the subconscious to come out. And, you know, with sleep, what I suggest to people often is to just write a note in their journal before they go to sleep. So I've got a few things that I tell people to do at night before they go to sleep. And one of those is deal with an issue that you have, a problem that you have, a challenge that you're dealing with, a change that you're grappling with. Just write it down and even put down a few thoughts that you've had around that and then go to sleep because then you're priming your brain before you go to sleep because it is actually a superpower that we don't use enough because we constantly try to to harness the part of the brain that we can control or we think we can control. But we have this whole beautiful, um, you know, seething mass of knowledge and skills underneath the surface that we can definitely harness if we use those particular strategies. Right. There's a tricky situation when, especially when we are living a very, uh, a moment of a lot of changes and our brain is like working all the time and we go to sleep in the middle of the night, boom, the idea is there. That's a good thing, but you cannot sleep anymore because you get excited and, and, and your body gets a lot of energy and you it's the middle of the night, you have to travel the next morning, and but a lot of things happening in your head. Can we deal with that? Do you have some tips for us? Look, Part of the challenge is when your brain is active, it can wake you up. And one of the reasons it actually does wake you up is when your blood glucose isn't stable. Because when your blood glucose dips, your body will send a message to make some adrenaline to get you to go and get your blood glucose stable again. So funnily enough, we actually have to look after our sleep during the day by keeping our blood glucose stable. So that's the one thing to keep in mind. And then the other thing, if you're very stressed and you're very busy and your brain is always active, you may run out of magnesium. And magnesium can also, or a lack of magnesium can also wake you up at night. So that's something else to, to keep in mind. But then there's something else, which unfortunately is just the reality of living with a very sensitive and sophisticated brain. And that is to accept that sometimes this happens. And so for myself personally, I have accepted that. I keep a notebook next to my bed now and I just make a few notes on the thoughts that I'm thinking and then I close my eyes and I lie still and I do some meditation. And I may not go back to sleep for another hour, but eventually I do go back to sleep because I make the, the circumstances very conducive to sleep. If you get up and you go to your laptop and you start typing and you put all your ideas there, you then miss that beautiful deep sleep that your brain has to have to be able to clean itself. And if your brain doesn't clean itself, decision-making and change becomes even more of a challenge. So, you know, blood glucose, making sure you've got enough of the right kind of magnesium. And then thirdly, just accepting that there's some times in life where this happens. If I've got a big project on and I'm thinking about lots of things and I'm, you know, making connections between things and trying to deal with an issue or challenge that I haven't dealt with before, that will happen to me. And I've now gotten to the point, I accept this. I say, this is part of how my brain works. I'm going to rather embrace it 
and live with it, but not get up. Now, I know that there are lots of books written about sleep and that you must get out of the bed and go to another room. You can do that if the other room is not stimulating. Because just remember, you've stimulated your own brain. And if you go into another room that's full of stimulation, what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to go back to sleep. So that was, that's what works for me. Other people may find getting up, going to another dark room, sitting in the dark, maybe just having a little light on and writing in their journal, that may work for them. Or read a very, very boring book. But don't switch technology on because technology will immediately start the synthesis of dopamine, start stimulating you visually. And even if you've got flux on your, on your technology um, you know, to, to stop the blue light, what will happen is you'll become too stimulated. So just stick to the you know, old books, paper books, and just your notepad. And that can help you. But as I said, sometimes just accepting this as part of the pleasure of having a beautiful brain is, is something that we have to do. Okay. Let's come back for our original question, which is organizational change. And you told us that uh, change is hard. It it it, this, it it asks for a lot of energy. And RC did a question a lot of time ago, but I didn't didn't lost your question, RC. Uh, what do you think, uh, or how can we give people the extra energy to form these new neural pathways? So we are dealing with a lot of people with a culture. And how can we give them this energy that they need to transform the way they think? And what's the business analysis role in this to support this process? I don't know. Be my guest to answer as you want. Look, I think that this, this question comes back to, you know, leaders having to acknowledge that they will not be successful or as successful as they could be if they don't take into account the well-being of their staff. They have to take into account that it's people that are actioning the change. Now, unless AI is running anybody's business, and I don't think that there are too many companies where AI is doing that 100%, then they have to take into account that it's a human being. Now, the culture then needs to shift, and that means that the employee's well-being has to be taken into account. So what do you do under those circumstances? You make it easy or easier for the brain to retain neural energy because that will be used for change and decision-making and innovation and creativity and make it hard for the brain to get involved in other activities that are going to remove that. Now, by that I mean when organizations communicate with their staff in a whole lot of different ways, it's really, really bad for the brains of those people because they have to go and check all of those different messaging platforms to be able to figure out what's going on. If the company sends 10 emails to the staff and not everybody needs those emails, then once again, every time that email is opened, that person is using a little bit of neural energy. Even if it's to say, this isn't for me, I don't have to look at it. If the staff isn't giving or making sure that the staff are taking regular breaks during the day, then they're making sure that those brains are going to run down. Those brains aren't going to have enough energy. And we know that something like decision fatigue is real because the brain runs out of energy as we get to the end of the day, specifically the prefrontal cortex. And then the prefrontal cortex does one of two things. It either goes with a habitual response or it does nothing, which means that 
people stop being productive when their prefrontal cortex runs out of energy. So making sure the staff take regular breaks, making sure they actually eat when they have a break. Because many people get so involved with their work that they forget about eating. And what happens? Blood glucose goes up and down. When blood glucose goes up and down, so does adrenaline go up and down. No energy for the brain, no place to store that energy. So the corporate culture has to shift to one of being supportive of the staff, supportive of these people that are carrying the organization to its destination, whatever that destination is, whatever that change is. If the corporate culture has, a, has the culture of saying, well, we sleep when we did, you have to answer emails 24 seven. Nobody here takes lunch. Only people that are weak take lunch. If that's the kind of corporate culture you have, you can be sure that turnover will be high. Presenteeism will be very, very high as well. Um, you can be sure that productivity will be very low. And also people will be off sick all the time because the immune system is also linked to this constant state of, of feeling stressed. So basically the bottom answer to that is the culture has to change. If change is expected, and change is going to be consistent, which is the case in the world today. And leaders have to acknowledge that they are working with the brains. They are not working with machines. They are working with brains that are made up of flesh and blood. And those brains need to be nourished and nurtured if they're going to be able to cope with change. Nice. I want to address a little bit about the second part of the question that's related to business analysis. And that's my field, so let me uh, uh, put some words on that and you can complete it. Uh, I see that uh, someone who works with business analysis, we usually call them business analysts, but in some organizations they don't have this name, they may have other names like product owners, uh, business architects, consultants, or I don't know, very different names, but they are practicing a set of te uh, uh, techniques that help, us help organizations to deal with change. And so the day-by-day -day of a business analyst is to deal with change. So the regular of a business analyst is to deal with change. They're always trying to understand the stakeholders, what are their needs, and to put some clarity on that and to make that communication easier and that everyone can understand it and that, that can reduce stress and can understand different perspectives and bring them to... Uh, an open discussion so they can be transparent, people can be like, they can be heard. So I believe that business analysts have a way of thinking and working that is transforming their brains constantly because they're always dealing with change. I have been calling that, I, I know you don't like that, that word very much, but I call it a mindset or, and a way of thinking that change the, their behavior. So someone who works with business analysis very often changes the way they think. I call it a business analysis mindset. And that mindset can be shared with other professionals. So if I have in an organization, a lot of managers, let's say, or other people who works in the operations that develop this way of thinking that a business analysis has, always looking for opportunities, where can we change, how can we get better outcomes, how can we uh, uh, see this from different perspectives, as not a moment of change, a particular change, a project, but a way of living, right? So always looking for that. Maybe change may not be so stressful. Maybe change could be easier for organizations. Does that make any sense? 
Yes, it makes 100% because you're basically building a neural pathway that is saying, when I see an opportunity, when I see a situation, when I see anything that could benefit from change, I'm going to be open to that. So when you speak about mindset, that's what you're speaking about. You're speaking about a habit of mind, a way of thinking about any situation that you come to where you now use that habit of mind. What about the situation can I improve? What can change? What can be made better? What can I get rid of to make it better? So that habit of mind is simply a neural pathway. And the more you use that neural pathway, the more capable it will become of picking up nuances in situations. It is a very important skill that, that you're actually building. And I suspect that that skill will end up being generalized to other things in life. So it won't just be related to business analysis or whatever the word is that you use. I think that way of thinking, that habit of mind can be used in other situations. So you've come across maybe a family situation or maybe something else in a corporate that isn't related to analyzing the business. Maybe it's to do with leadership. You would then be able to use that habit of mind to say, hold on a second, what about the situation can improve? What can I change? So I do believe that that exists and I think that you can teach it to other people but I think the person and we understand this the person that uses this the most the person that practices this the most will have that in their toolkit to use and be very very flexible with how they can use that because they're practicing it more and more it's the same as if you know you play a piano when you play as a child and you don't play as an adult you will lose the skill um, having that business analysis habit of mind will mean that you go forward using it. And the more you use it, the better you get at it. So I love the fact that you brought that up because I think that's very important and it's definitely feasible. All right. And, and I see that people who are trained to do something that becomes so natural that at some point they're not seeing the techniques anymore. They're, those are just part of them. Like if I'm in a restaurant and there's a criminal with enters with a gun, I would not know what to do. Probably a policeman who was trained for this kind of situation knows exactly what to do, how to behave, how to control the situation because they are trained and at some point this become natural for them. And as you said, for business analysts who are dealing with different opinions and different people trying to understand different scenarios, it becomes so natural that we use that in every aspect of our lives, in family meetings, in, in, in playing football with your friends or any, any place that you are. 100%. And it's a wonderful skill to have because the more things change, if we really think about it, this is the slowest that change will ever be in our life. And it's happening at a rapid pace. It's only going to get more, change is only going to get more rapid and the world is only going to get more complex. So it's a really great skill to have, to be able to use in a variety of different situations. Just keeping your mind open to what the possibilities are and then not holding on to the past. And we can practice that um, as we go forward. Perfect. There's a, a, a question from Greg. He say he asks if this is going to be available, if the recording is going to be available later. Yes, Greg, they will on LinkedIn, on my on my profile on LinkedIn, or on the Brazilian BA on YouTube. Uh, if you go to the Brazilian BA, it's going to be there as well. Just look for this and other interviews that are there. And there's a, a final question on my list here that, that people ask it from 
LinkedIn before we start this conversation. Uh, and it relates to this skill that you say. And we thought that this can be developed. We can teach people like the, the business analysis skill may be developed by training and practicing. But is there some natural things about skills? What is the, the, the origin of a talent? Some people, some people are more, seems to be more skilled to some analytical thinking for, some, uh, for dealing with change than others. Is that something that they learn from since they're kids or is a part of it that is natural? How is this difference between uh, 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 skills that you learn and skills that you have from from your DNA, yeah. From your genes. It's a good question. And I don't think we have an answer in its entirety yet. But we do know that some people seem to be born with the capacity to look at things more critically and to ask questions related to that. So we do think that there is a genetic capacity and it may be linked to intellect and cognitive capacity. It may be, but it may not, it's not always linked to that. Um, I know some very smart people who are very stuck in their ways and they definitely don't have any open mind to, to change. So it's definitely not just related to that. But people can be taught how to think critically. And that's one of the things that universities are supposed to do. Universities are supposed to teach students to ask lots and lots of questions, to find out how they know or how they think they know what they know to ask them questions on the other side of a debate. So if they agree with something, to debate the opposite so that they can start seeing different perspectives. And in that way, we train the brain to be able to think critically. Uh, personality is something that comes into this, or what I call personal tendencies or personal characteristics. And as I said earlier about the amygdala person, that person was much more primed than the other people on the team to see a negative outcome and to see a possible negative consequence. So that person was likely born into an environment that felt more threatening than the other person on the team, the other people on the team. Now, how does that happen? When we're really young and our brain is still developing, what happens is that the amygdala can grow bigger when the brain feels that it is in a physically um, threatened environment so when that child believes that it is going to that it can be physically hurt physically threatened the amygdala gets bigger and it doesn't shrink in size as we get older it stays alert and so that person stays alert for their lifetime and we know this unfortunately from some natural experiments that were done in world war ii when children from families in germany were sent to live in other countries in europe So they left their caregivers at a very young age and they were sent to safety. And those children, when they were examined 10 and 20 and 30 and then 60 years later, had heightened cortisol responses compared to the rest of the population. So we know that this sense of vigilance and the sense of concern and the sense of heightened awareness is something that can be with us for a lifetime if our childhood was filled with this kind of a trauma. So all of those things need to be taken into account when we think about how we think critically, um, if or not. But I think, you know, one of the takeaway messages is that I'd like um, any viewers 
to, to take away is that we need to think about how we're thinking. When we think about how we're thinking, we're applying a level of consciousness and a level of critical analysis to the thinking. So then we can say, well, look, I'm being very emotional right now. Let me step away. Or I'm really angry right now. Maybe my blood glucose is dipping. I'm asking ourselves those questions around our actual thinking process gives us a lot more power to then go back and think more deeply, differently, call in other people's opinions to be able to help us make better decisions and deal better with change. Interesting. Like what you do with our brain is what we do as business owners with our business. So we don't just work our business. We want to understand our business and look for their processes, their decision models, their systems, their structure. And you do that in a very more personal uh, 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 way, looking for using your brain to think about your brain. That, that's awesome. Dr. Gilead, we are ending this, uh, uh, this session. It was lovely and very interesting, but people may want more. Can they find you? How can they find you? Where can people find more from Dr. Diga and neuroscience? What I'll do, everybody that's on this call that finds me on LinkedIn and follows me there, I will send them a one pager in relation to decision making that they will find very interesting. And then from there on, when I share anything that I'm doing, um, share about my books or share about my courses, they'll get to know about that. But it's a lovely gift to give to people. Um, and I can share it with you as well. And you can share it with them. But if they go and follow me on LinkedIn, then they'll be able to see the other things that I speak about in relation to this important conversation. All right. And let's put this as a comment below this video on LinkedIn and below this video on YouTube. So wherever people follow us, this link is going to be there and easy for access. That's nice. Thank you very much for coming. It was such a pleasure to have you here. I learned so much, and I believe people who were joining us did learn as well. Thank you very much, Dr. Didier. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, and goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.